We are an expository church, which means that we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible. Um, and uh, we typically do it um, pretty successfully, um, successively as we go through each book. We've been through Genesis, we've been through Exodus, we've been through Galatians, uh, uh, recently Matthew, and, and now we're in Romans. Um, and I, I gotta say, eight months ago, it seemed like a good idea to end the series at Romans 8 and pick it back up in Romans 9 in the fall. Now that it's the first Sunday of fall kickoff and we're in Romans 9, I'm not so sure that was a great idea, but here we are. So today, for many of you, it's your first day, first Sunday back from vacations and different things like that, and we, uh, we get, uh, you know, relatively easy text to <laughs> uh, exposit. So um, we just want to, we just want to welcome you here and uh, if you don't like what I have to say today, there is always next Sunday, and we will move on to the next set of verses where you might not like that either. So um, just keep coming back, and we'll eventually get to the end of Romans, and then we can start something else that you might like. So um, here's, what I wanted, here's how I want to start off. Imagine for a moment that you are a news reporter covering the opening of an art show uh, that has Rembrandt's most famous paintings on exhibit. The curator clears his throat and tells the audience that he has found Rembrandt's The Storm of the sea of, on the Sea of Galilee, after which being stolen more than a decade ago, was thought to be lost forever. For the first time in decades, the painting is available to the public once more, and you, as a reporter, get the great opportunity of describing for audiences far and wide what it's like to behold Rembrandt's lost masterpiece once again. How do you describe something like that? Now, if you don't know what painting, I'm, what, I'm, uh, what painting I'm referring to, well, then you can go to Google and type in the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. But imagine how strange it would be for a reporter to write only facts about the painting. Suppose he says nothing about what it was actually like to see the painting, but instead begins listing off details. He remarks at how wonderful it was to see such a great use of oil paint on a 160 by 128 centimeter canvas. He drifts into a rather dull description about Rembrandt's linear precision and how the mass divides the painting into two nearly equal triangles. He breaks out expert terminology in praising Rembrandt's use of the chioscuro style. Right, that was impressive, I think. <laughs> I had to listen to Google pronounce six different times to get that. In other words, where one half of the painting is lighter and the other half is darker. Now, that might be a great analysis of the actual painting, right? It's a very poor description of what Rembrandt's conveying in this painting. It doesn't even come close to what it's like to behold Rembrandt's lost treasure. To actually see the painting, to feel the painting, to experience what Rembrandt desired you to experience in seeing this painting. Now compare that analysis, that report, with a description offered by a different reporter. You open the paper and you read this, when the veil dropped, hearts stopped as the storm on the Sea of Galilee captivates observers with its rich contours and contrast of hope-filled light and the dark doom of the storm. As you are gazing at its intricate details, you begin to realize how beautiful it is. Rembrandt was so skillful in his work that if you look at the waves long enough, they seem to be moving. 
Looking at the cells, you can almost feel the stormy wind blowing through your hairs, through your hair, and the waves, cold mist splashing up onto your face. You can feel the heart-pounding drama of the figures as they fight to gain control of the ship and rush to Jesus for help. And yet you feel comforted when you look into the only calm face on the canvas, the face of Christ, who, as the Gospels describe, will soon rise to calm the sea. There's a vast difference between those two reports, isn't there? Very big difference. One tells you how many centimeters the canvas is and what kind of paint was used and even the techniques and the methods that Rembrandt used, and the other actually makes you be moved by the painting, makes you want to see it now, right? Makes you want to go look at it and see if you experience that thing. You see, one reporter merely looks at Rembrandt's painting but fails to really see it. The second reporter does not just look at the painting, she experiences it. It's not just canvas, wood, and oil paint. It's not just artistic technique and style. Quite the contrary, Rembrandt's painting is a message, and it carries a deeper meaning that's not meant just to be looked at, but to be felt, to be moved by. It brings peace and hope. Now, you might be wondering, what in the heck does this have to do with Romans 9? Sadly, when it comes to Romans 9, many Christians are, mere, are guilty of merely looking at the text without ever really being captivated by its message. To them, Romans 9 is nothing more than a text that's to be analyzed theologically and to be plundered of some quotable statements that now we can use in battle against other camps who see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility differently from us. Romans 9 is not a masterpiece that's meant to be felt and meant to move us. Instead, it's a battleground for theological scuffs. But to Christians, Romans more should be more than just a text to be analyzed. It's not just mere dogged, uh, detailed theology here, right? In the sense of something to be debated. For Paul, this section is not a theological analysis of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. It's not that. For him, this text represents a great hope. It's meant to give us confidence that God will keep his promises. While to many modern Christians, the inner workings of God's sovereignty is just a matter to debate. We're just gonna, it, it, when, we, when we talk about things like election, predestination, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, sometimes we reduce all those things down to just mere facts and debates, and that's like describing Rembrandt's The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, by saying it's a 160 by 128 centimeter canvas in oil paint. The reason the Bible talks about God's sovereignty and his election and his predestination is not so that you can analyze God. You cannot analyze God. It's so that you'll be moved into confidence that our sovereign God, however his sovereignty works, is going to keep his promises. My friends, I've been in theological institutions for a long time. I think my wife and I did the math, and you know, I've been in school generally for the last decade, solidly, without a break. There's a hundred different debates and theories and a hundred different theological systems offered, from everything from Arminianism to Calvinism to four-point Ar Arminianism, five-point Calvinism, hyper-Calvinism, Molinism, lots of systems out there. And guess what? None of them really 
capture the beauty of what sovereignty means here. It's not a theological debate. It's not, it's not meant to be put under a microscope here. It's meant to be felt. Now, you guys might wonder where I stand on it. I, you can call me a Calvinist if you want. I believe in God's sovereignty. But here's one thing I know. No matter what name or, or attribution I attach to myself, at the end of the day, God's sovereignty is meant to wow me and put me in awe and wonder, not for me to go, I get it now. I know exactly how it works. I'm gonna tell you all how it works. That's not how it works with that. When we look at God's sovereignty, we should look at it like the storm on the Sea of Galilee and be wowed by it, to, to experience the wind and the hair and the waves moving, to, to, be, to be drawn in by its beauty, by its amazement. Why do we fight against God's sovereignty? Why do we deny man's responsibility? It, the scripture doesn't want us to do that. It wants us to be captivated by our sovereign God who always keeps his promises. That's a whole lot more simple simple than debating whether Molinism, Calvinism, or Arminianism is more correct, right? God is sovereign. He keeps his promises. Scripture also affirms that man is responsible and must put their faith in Jesus. And all at the same time, whatever we choose will never, ever, ever screw up what God has promised. Just stands there. This is the truth that God has given us in his scripture. So, you know, I, I, I've got to tell you, if, if you come expecting Romans 9 to finally settle the debate, and, and we're going to have a whole bunch of Armenians now become Calvinists, a whole bunch of Calvinists, maybe they're going to move more towards Molinism, or Molinists are going to finally be corrected and become Calvinists themselves. <laughs> Whatever you thought this was going to be, it's not going to be that, because we're not going to analyze an unanalyzable God. We're going to enjoy the fact that he is sovereign and hear Paul's message for the beauty that it actually offers. Now, before we dive in this section, I think that is absolutely important to be clear about Paul's intentions. Paul's aim is not for you to understand God's sovereignty. That sounds wrong, doesn't it? He wants you to know that God is sovereign but his goal is not so that you will understand how his sovereignty works. In fact, by the end of this really long section, which goes from chapter 9 to chapter 11, we find out that we have more questions than we have answers. And when he gets to the end of his, his discussion and his, his argument, here's what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. So if you read the whole section in context, then you know that what we're reading here in Romans 9 is not so that we can understand the inscrutable God. We're not going to understand ununderstandable sovereignty. That's not, that's not what's going to happen. Instead, he's going to tell you that God is sovereign and leave it at that. He's going to tell you that God is sovereign and keeps his promises and not try to explain the intricacies of our inscrutable, unsearchable Lord. So let's just begin there. If God is uns God's ways are inscrutable, we're just talking about God's ways, what he does. We're not talking about God himself here. If God's ways are inscrutable and unsearchable, then you don't have a hope to even begin to comprehend 
internal complexities of God's power and mind. How does election work? I don't know. I wasn't there. I was not a part of the triune God that elected, predestined. Those are words found in Scripture. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 1, Romans 9. You can look them up. They're there in Greek. Election, electos. I mean, it's, it's there. God chose. And Paul makes sure you know that that, ta- that choice happened before time began. How did that all work out? What was the basis? I have no idea. I was born July 1st, 1989. Go ahead and put it in your phone so you can send me birthday cards. I was not here when the triune God took counsel and set off the plan of redemption. And neither were you. So how does it work? I don't know, it just works. I don't know how it works, it just works. God chose, how did he choose? I don't know, but I know he chose me. And that's a beautiful thing. Why did he choose me? I have no idea. He just chose me. He said I could be in his family. On what basis? Well, not because of me. What other basis? I have no idea. But in his sovereignty, he chose. And because he chose, I'm in his family and he's my father and I have a good savior and I have a eternal redemption to come. And because he's sovereign, I can guarantee you this. I am not in the family of God because I was smart enough to figure out the truth. I'm not in the family of God because I had some kind of moral fiber that chose the better way. I'm in the family of God because God willed it to be so. If you doubt me on that, listen to Ephesians 2. For you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What do dead people do? Dead people can't even scratch their nose. And yet we expect dead people to come to the ever-living truth of redemption and the gospel by themselves? You were dead, which means that had God not raised you up with Christ, you would have never known him. It is God who who initiated God who won your salvation. And that's the simple matter, matter of the truth. I don't know how it works. I cannot describe the sovereignty of the supreme king. Um, but I know it works. I know it works. So let's just humble ourselves for a moment, right? We've, we've read a lot of books. We've listened to a lot of podcasts on the debates. You've had your favorite preachers. Some of them were Arminian. Some of them were Calvinists. Some of them were somewhere in between. Somewhere were... Some were other things as well. I just want to, let's just, let's just put that aside for the moment, okay? Those things are helpful in their due place. But in order for the sermon, not the theological debate on Romans 9, to have its effect, you have to let the Spirit move you by the message that God is sovereign. If you keep interrupting Him throughout the sermon, asking Him and demanding Him to tell you how it works, you will not be moved, I just want to give you fair warning. By the end of Romans 9, you're not going to feel like you understand the intricacies of God's sovereignty any better than you did walking in. But hopefully you will walk out celebrating that God is a sovereign God. That's my one and only goal. So there you go. Okay. Paul picks up discussion 
that he started in Romans 3. There, Paul asked what the advantage the Jew had in God's redemptive economy. His conclusion that was, was that while the Jews have much to gain from being Jewish, they, like the Gentiles, are still in need of justification. This leads to all kinds of looming questions in the background. If God is saving the Gentiles by faith, then what about the Jews? What's going to happen to Israel? Paul returns to this question after dealing with it in Romans 3 and comes to it again in Romans 9 and deals with it all the way to chapter 11. So we've got three chapters of Paul just trying to answer what is God doing with the Jews? Romans 9 to 11 shows that while many Jews have rejected God and the gospel, God is still sovereign and his promises have not been sidetracked at all. His promises remain firm. He'd just written about the love of Christ and how we can't be separated from the love of Christ. Moy preached an amazing sermon on that uh, back in the spring. And you can go back and listen to that if you want. And it's in the midst of talking about this inseparable love of Christ, this love of Christ that we can't get out of, no matter who it is or what we do, no height nor depth, no, nor even yourself, can get yourself out of Christ's love. He then begins to think about his own people. He's got to experience this amazing love of Jesus. And he thinks about how many of the Jews have rejected it. And so he says this. He just, he just breaks the conversation and decides, let's change the subject to my own people here. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Well, because his own kinsmen have refused to believe the gospel. Why is he brokenhearted? Because they have rejected Jesus. He even goes so far to say, if I could take their place and be accursed for them, if I could take their place and be cut off on their behalf, I would. I mean, after all, to them belong the promises, to them belong the patriarchs, to them belong the adoption. They, they were called God's firstborn son. That's what he called them in Exodus. They have all these great things, the law, the covenant. They have everything. And it's from their line that the Messiah comes. And yet, with everything they have, they have still rejected the Lord. And that saddens Paul to the greatest extent, to the point where he's basically saying, if I could go to hell on their behalf, I would, so that they might know the love of Christ. Now, if there's anyone who thinks that believing in God's absolute sovereignty over salvation comes with a lack of love for the lost, let Paul's example graciously correct your error. I remember when I, when I first started believing in the doctrines of sovereign grace, a, a preacher uh, sat down with me and goes, so you're rejecting love for the lost then, aren't you? I said, I don't think so. I still love my lost neighbors. Well, if you believe that God is sovereign over salvation, that he elects and he predestines, then you're basically saying that you don't care about those that don't know Jesus. Uh, Paul says that, and he says the exact opposite. You see, belief in God's sovereignty and that he is absolutely sovereign over everything, including salvation, does not demand a neglect of love for the lost. It doesn't come with that. To believe that God is sovereign over salvation and love for the lost is not antithetical to one another. In fact, go back to your history books and you'll find that some of the greatest missionaries in history who started the modern missions movement were all, quote unquote, Calvinist. Jim Elliott, 
I don't want to say all, but the ones that we've heard of, Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, William Carey, John G. Patton, Jim Elliott, Elizabeth Elliott, they all thoroughly believed in the sovereignty of God and that not one person could come to faith on their own. Now, how is it? How do we reconcile that? Now, I, I, I just want to preface this. that how, how is it that someone can believe that God is sovereign and that no one can be saved outside of God's sovereign will and initiation to do that and yet retain a love for the lost and go on missions? I can speak from my own experience that it was when I discovered that God is sovereign over salvation, when I read Ephesians chapter two, when I read Romans nine, that I signed my name up to go to China because it gave me the greatest confidence that if God is sovereign, then there are people in China that will be saved. He promised that there will be people from every tribe, nation, and tongue that will be saved. He said that, right? He's promised it. He's sovereign to do it right? So I go not to make it happen. I go because he said it would happen. And I want to watch that. I get to be a part of that. I mean, and and that's why missionaries like William Carey went and stayed. I mean, you think about going back in time to India, back when there was very little governmental legislation, lots of persecution. People had never been told the name of Jesus He uh, lost two wives, was constantly under personal attack, faced opposition from local people that were worshiping idols, and he was facing opposition from the British Trading Company who didn't want him interfering and making these pagans more intellectual because it ruined their business. They didn't want him to teach them how to read scripture because then they could read and now they can think for themselves. So he's facing opposition from both sides. Both tribes, both kinds of people tried to kill him at different moments, threatened him, cut him off. Here's what he said. When I left England, he's an old man when he writes this, and so he's thinking back on years of ministry in in, in India. He says, when I left England, my hope of India's conversion was very strong, but amongst so many obstacles, it would die unless upheld by God. Well, I have God, and his word is true. Though the superstitions of the heathen were a thousand times stronger than they are, the example of the Europeans a thousand times worse, though I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith fixed on that sure word of God would rise above all obstacles and overcome every trial. Why? God's cause will triumph. God is sovereign. So why should missionaries go to the hardest to reach places to share the lost? Couldn't God do it without them? Well, absolutely. Yes, he could. But he commanded them to go. God does work through means. And in his sovereignty, he said he's going to save all the nations. And then in his sovereignty, he also commanded you to go. It all works together in God's same sovereign plan. Sovereignty and missions are married together. Let no man separate what God has brought together, ever. Missionaries, when you go to Colombia, you're not going to save a nation. You're not going to make Jesus king of the Colombians. Jesus is already king of the Colombians. 
you're going to tell them the good news that Jesus is king of the Colombians and then tell them how he became king of the Colombians. And as Jesus works and his spirit works and as God's sovereign plan, when people accept Jesus two weeks from now because you shared the gospel, that was not because of you. It was because God in our sovereignty is working his rich and sovereign hand to keep his promises. You get to be a part of an ancient, ancient thing that the Lord began before time began. How good is that for you? Now you don't have to worry about how skilled you are. Sure, you should say the right things, hopefully. God will save them. But you should stay, still share the gospel. He saves them through the gospel, right? But, but I don't have to stress out about, okay, what if, what if I'm a nerd when I get there and nobody likes me? What if I do something anti-cultural and break something and, and, and now it's all ruined? What if, what if I ruin this whole thing? Guys, you cannot ruin God's sovereign purposes. His sovereign purposes march on. They're unthwartable. I'm not denying that we can sin and do things that we shouldn't. I'm just denying that your sin can actually change God. It can't. He's not a pawn on our chessboard. We can't move him, change him. We can't change his purposes or promises. He is God, the unchanging God. Scripture says it over and over and over again. So go and enjoy as you get to see God work. How amazing is that? So that was all a tangent. Um, all to say that missions, love for the lost, evangelism, and an absolute dogmatic belief in God's sovereignty, regardless of whatever tribe you fall under or whatever theological name that you would put before you, the fact of the matter is, is that a belief in God's sovereignty, love for the lost, and a commitment to evangelize are mingled in the same family. They don't have to be reconciled. They're already friends, according to Spurgeon. They already belong together. They're not opposed to each other. They're not even a paradox. They belong together. And in God's mysterious sovereignty, they work together. We're going to we're going to deal with, now we're going to shift gears. So we talked about, okay, Scripture talks about love for the lost and God's sovereignty belonging together. It just says that they do, right? Paul believes in God's sovereignty and yet also has an absolute love for the lost to such an extent that he says, if I could go to hell so they could go to heaven, I would. And those two things come together. Now, how does God's sovereignty and man's responsibility fit together? We're not going to answer that question today. In fact, as we continue through Romans 9, we're going to address our hearts about what is wrong with our hearts that we want to know the answer between those things. Why can't we accept that God is simply the sovereign king and that he has called us to share the gospel? So Paul's heartbroken that some among his people have rejected the gospel, but he knows that despite the fact many Jews have rejected the gospel, this does not mean that God has reneged on his promises. He's not taking them back. He says this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Do you hear that? Israel has rejected the Lord. Many, many Jews have walked away from, not all of them, but some of them have walked away from the gospel at this point. He said, yeah, but this doesn't mean that God has broken his promise. He's kept his word. Here's how he, how he argues that. So, so you're, you're at this point, you're like, okay, the Jews were given the promises. They were given the covenants. They were, they were, it was 
said that it would be from their line that they would have the Messiah. Now they've all rejected the Messiah, or many of them have rejected the Messiah. So how is it that God kept his promise and that Israel's rejection doesn't mean that God has failed? So he's going he's gonna to answer that. He says that God's promise hasn't failed, even though that only some of the Jews have received the gospel and many of the Gentiles are, because not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Verse 6 and 7, if you want to look at, put your own eyes on the text. And not all are children of Abraham because of his offspring. Now, if I just said that and had my Bible closed, you, you would have full room to debate me on that. But put your eyes on the text. It's there. I read it from the page. It's, it's, I mean, it's right here, <laughs> okay? Not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham simply because they come from Abraham, are offspring from Abraham. As he has maintained throughout Romans, a person's place in the people of God doesn't depend on any external factors. It's not because of biological descent. It's not because of morality. It's not because of some philosophy. It is simply because God's, God, of God's sovereignty bringing people into his family. You realize if we said that people could come into the family of God because of their moral choices, that we've just made the gospel a man-centered thing. If we say that God must save biological descendants of Abraham, then we've just made it a biological thing. But Paul's saying the gospel is none of that. The gospel is a God thing. It's a God-centered thing. It's God who does it. To prove his point, he recalls the story of Isaac. So if you go back to Genesis, then you know that Isaac was not Abraham's firstborn son. Who was the firstborn son of Abraham? Ishmael, right? Now, is Ishmael in the family of God? Not according to the scripture storyline. He's not in the line of blessing. In fact, he's rejected. According to the scripture storyline, God had promised that Sarah would bear a son and that that son would be through some miraculous work. Because remember, Sarah's elderly at this point and barren. She's not supposed to have children. Abraham and, and Sarah know this, so they hatch this plan. They get tired of the delay. They don't know how it's going to work out. God has said they were going to have a son and that they were going to have a son. Well, she's old and barren and he's old. How is this, this going to work? Well, it's not going to work, so we're going to figure it out. So they take Hagar. Abraham sleeps with Hagar instead of Sarai. And then they have Ishmael, and God reminds Abraham, it will not be because of flesh that my promises come. It is not the children of flesh, not by your exertion, not by your willpower, but by the promise of God, and that alone. It's not the children of flesh, verse 8, who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. So just as Ishmael, the biological son of Abraham, his own flesh and blood son, was not considered as in the family of Abraham. Why? Because it's not flesh that makes someone. Someone's not there because of their biological descent or any other external thing. It's because of God's promises. It's because of what God has said. So who then is to be brought into God's covenant promises? How, how do, who, who is going to do this? Well, Paul's answer might uh, 
might surprise you. Who can be in the family of God if, if biology doesn't determine who's in the family of God, if morality doesn't determine who's in the family of God, if no other external factor determines who's in the family of God, who then or what then determines who's in the family of God? Guess how Paul's gonna answer this? Whoever God wants to be in his family. Now, we're reading Romans 9. I'm not denying John 3.16 that says whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. There's somewhere, again, where we have to let these two texts stand together. Who is in the family of God? Well, whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, John 3.16. Who's in the family of God? Well, whoever God wants to be in his family. Romans 9. They're not at war with each other. That might confuse the heck out of you. But at the, at the same time, isn't that just like a sovereign God to be, be beyond our comprehension? Isn't it just like the creator of the Milky Way to be beyond anything that we can understand? Because we don't even know what's at the bottom of the ocean floor. I don't even know the pin to my bank account. I have to ask my wife all the time. I'm quite okay going, well, yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to figure that one out. And we've got to be there and let these things stand together. He points, he goes on to Jacob and Esau, and he says, in, in, in that choice, you guys know that story where Esau was born first. He was the firstborn son. So from a human standpoint, he should have been the one to receive the blessing. But he doesn't receive the blessing. Jacob does. Why? Listen to what Paul says, eyes on the text, so you know that I'm not adding, so you know I'm not taking away. Verses 11 and 13. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, neither good or bad, in order that God's promises of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now, if you go back to the text where that is actually written in Malachi, you know what it means. It, mean, it doesn't mean that he hates Esau. It means that he hasn't chosen Esau. He's rejected him from the family line. But it does mean that he has loved, he has elected Jacob to be a part of the family. Now again, why did God choose Jacob or Esau? Well, he knew that Jacob would be a better dude than Esau. Have you read Genesis? <laughs> At the end of the Genesis storyline between Jacob and Esau, Esau, I like Esau better. I hate to say it. He's more manly, probably doesn't speak with a squeaky voice, actually has a beard. I mean, he's rich. He's the one that's more mature, and Jacob's all afraid that Esau's going to come kill him, and Esau actually comes and says, hey, let's let bygones be bygones, man. Esau comes out of the story the better character. So if God saved, if God brought Jacob into his line because he's like, Jacob's gonna be the better out of these two. I don't know what Bible you're reading. <laughs> I don't know where you got that. No, that's not true. In fact, Paul says, just in case you think that, before they had done anything, before they were even born, before they had done good or bad, God's purpose of, oh, there's the word, election would continue. Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? I have no idea, because he had a reason. What was the reason? I have no idea. I do know it, was nothing to, it has nothing to do with Jacob. It's not about Jacob being good or bad, or the stronger son, or the wiser son, or the more handsome son, or anything like that. It's nothing to do with that. He says it outright. 
God just chose Jacob. You might not like that. I'm sorry you don't like that. It's written that way. You have to wrangle with Paul here, not me. I didn't write it. <laughs> you can send a letter to Paul's editor and tell him that you didn't like the way that he wrote it if you didn't like it. I'm sure you'll get a response somewhere. What's the basis of his choice? I have no idea, but Paul says he chose. If we take Romans 9 at face value, then, it, then we see that it declares God's election as a simple fact. It doesn't tell us how it works, does it? Do you guys feel any better about knowing how God chose? Well, it didn't say anything about that, did it? Just, it? The one thing it wants you to know, that it wasn't based on who was good and who was bad, and that was made before they were even born. That's the only thing he says. Other than that, he doesn't tell you why. You wanna know why? Because God doesn't have to give you an answer for anything. Let's not forget who's God and who's the creatures here. <laughs> he doesn't give any answer. He just says God chose. And that this choice was founded on his own sovereign choice, not on their works. Now, the, the next logical question is this, and this is what he asks. Is God unjust for choosing some and not choosing others? Now, that question alone implies that man is standing in the judgment seat and God's on trial, okay? Is God unjust for choosing some and not choosing others? Now, as a pastor, I have heard this question a lot when it comes to, when people begin reading Ephesians 2 and Romans 9, especially new believers, they come to this and they're like, I don't know what to do with this. I'm like, you too? <laughs> You're like, I don't know either. It's, but like God's sovereign. Um, I understand the question, and, and quite, to be quite frank, it's understandable. When you, when you begin to think that, okay, so, so Paul says that God chose, that God's choice was before they were born, and it had nothing to do with whether they were good or bad, then is it God's fault that people don't believe in him? Is God unjust? Paul asked that outright. Is there any injustice on God's part? He emphatically answers what? By no means. Meganetto, right? That's how you'd say that. Meganetto, you know? You can just hear old Greek-speaking Paul yelling in that Greek, Meganetto, right? Um, possibly throwing a cup at you while he said it. <laughs> Paul appeals to the book of Exodus for support here. Their God, again, this is all text, so I hope that you're, instead of sitting back going, he said the word Calvinism in a sermon and I'm not listening anymore, go, again, just... Wrangle with the text, not with any, you know, any of the titles or anything like that that I've used. He goes to Exodus 34, and if you know Exodus 34, um, or Exodus 33, I'm sorry. If you know Exodus 33, Moses has to see God, right? And God says, I'm going to make my goodness pass before you, um, and I'm going to proclaim my name. So he does. He, he goes before, he puts Moses in the cleft of the rock, and then he proclaims his name. I am the Lord, the Lord. And then here's the part where Paul um, quotes... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Can I just give you Justin's paraphrase of that? I can show mercy on whomever I dang well please. That's Texan version of that, okay? That's what he's saying. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Who do you show mercy to, God? Who do you show compassion to, God? Whoever I want, that's wrong. Wait a second. He's God. 
Is it wrong for God to do as he wills? If we're going to play theological tennis, let me just ask that question as I bat it back to you. Wait a second. Why is it wrong for God to do what he wants? Have we ever stopped to ask that question? It's not fair that God chooses. How is it right that God would choose anybody? How can he, how does it, why does his will matter? Why isn't our will? Whoa, okay. Now we're stepping into some very dangerous blasphemous ground. I know you don't like what I'm saying, but you do have to reckon with it. Have you ever thought about this, that God is glorified not just in showing mercy, but also in judgment? Did God have to save in order to be glorified? If you've read your Bibles, you know the answer to that question is an astounding no. He goes to Pharaoh for this. Now, I'm going to build up to the good part of this, right? Now, you may, again, you may not like any of this, but he, here's what he says. He uses Pharaoh as an example. For scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. So who raised Pharaoh up? Pharaoh raised himself up, but who else raised him him up? I have raised you up. Why? That I might show my power in you that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. Here's what he's saying. He raises Pharaoh up to do what? To topple him over. Why? So that in judgment of the Egyptians, all the earth may know who's the real king, who's the real God. What was the result when Pharaoh and his armies fell? God's glory. God's glory, absolute glory. So if you're thinking, no, God has to save to be glorified, that's not biblically true. God does not have to save to be glorified. He could have been just as glorified in your judgment as your salvation at the end of the day. Otherwise, I don't know what to do with this. I I mean, what do I do with Pharaoh? If God's not glorified in judgment, I don't know how to understand any of God's words to Pharaoh about, for this reason, I raise you up. I don't have any idea why why he even quotes that. You're going to have to explain that to me if you disagree with that. But what I think he's saying here is I raised up Pharaoh so I could judge him. Why? So I could be glorified in all the earth. Now, he concludes with saying, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, some of you may be absolutely upset that I just said that it's God's divine prerogative to choose whether he gives salvation or whether he gives judgment. You may be in absolute disagreement with me that God is glorified in both. But can I just tell you some good news here? If God could have been glorified through our judgment, why in the heck did he save us anyway? He didn't need to, did he? You see, what I love about Paul and his dealings with the sovereignty of God, you know what I like about Ephesians 2 and the the reality that we were dead in our trespasses, but God raised us up? You know what I love about all that? It really sweetens mercy to me. You see, if God had to show mercy in order to be glorified for all eternity, it's not really mercy, and it's not really a sacrifice. It's just him doing what he's got to do, what he has to do to be glorified. 
But if there were other ways that God could be glorified, like judging us, if he could be glorified through our judgment, how much sweeter is mercy that he chose to save and be glorified by that way instead? That to me just overwhelms me. God, if if consigning me to an eternal hell would have brought you glory, why would you do different and send your son to bleed and die on the bloody wooden cross for my sake? That captures my heart. That woos me to the sovereign God. He did not need me for glory at all. My old bones could be sticks thrown into fire and he would still be shown as the eternal, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God that he is. He He doesn't need me at all. And yet in his grace, he chose to save. I have no idea why. I don't know how it works. I just know here I stand, saved by the grace of God. I don't know how to reconcile the fact that there was once upon a time that I was in the domain of darkness and I've opened my eyes and I'm in the kingdom of the sun. I remember the moment when I first heard the gospel. I didn't like it. I thought it was a story tale. In fact, I thought, okay, that's, that's way too easy. You mean to, be, to tell me that all these people who do bad things, that they can be saved just by believing in Jesus? That's cheap. I didn't like it. If it was up to me and I had to make a definitive choice the first time I heard the gospel, it had been an absolute resounding, you're crazy. How in the world did I come to actually love the gospel and now become a gospel preacher where I'm telling you the same message? I have no idea what I'm doing up here. (laughs) And yet here I stand. I think sometimes we get so, we, we, we think and we want to charge God against his sovereignty from being who he has a right to be. That he has a right to be the sovereign God. He has a right to elect. He has a right to condemn. He has a right to harden. He has a right to save. And we like to charge God without ever asking. See, we ask the unfair, we ask the the wrong question. When we begin to say, how is it fair that God saves some but not all? If God is sovereign, how is it fair that he'd save some and not all? Whoa, if we're going to be fair, everybody should have died. Because what does the Bible say about sinners? All have sinned, right? So if we're going to talk about fairness, what would have been fair is you'd be in hell. Thank God he's not fair. He's just and gracious. Those are the words he used. Nowhere in any of the thousands of pages of scripture that you can read through will you ever see God claim to be fair. Just and gracious. Those are the titles he takes to himself. Again, how's that work? I have no idea. He just said it, not me. Paul says, you will then say to me, uh, then how does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? That's a fair question, another fair question. And yet Paul doesn't want to answer it. Paul doesn't answer it. He just simply says, well, who are you? 
I've already told you that God is not unjust, and that didn't satisfy you. So, so now we're getting to the point where this person has been on the judgment seat, and God is the, the, the accused, and Paul said, whoa, whoa, this is the wrong picture. God's not unjust. He's sovereign God. And this person's demanding, no, 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 I want to know. How could God be righteous if he's sovereign over salvation? If he elects, how is he good? Paul goes to two answers. Number one, the first answer is that God is absolutely sovereign. He's the creator. He's the potter. Don't forget who's the clay here, okay? Let's, we're, not, we're not debating with an equal here, okay? We're not... We're not putting a peer on the stand. We're putting sovereign God, the one one that knows how your internal organs work. The The one who put all that in you and breathed the breath of life and now you're a living creature. We're not peers any more than me and my two year old son are peers. And that would make more sense than us putting God on trial. We're not peers here. We're talking about the potter. We are like clay talking about the potter. One commentator writes, Paul is not condemning people who honestly seek to understand God's ways. So if you're honestly asking questions, he's not against that. But one thing he is against, he's against those who arrogantly challenge his justice and how he orders human affairs. That's one thing I hate about the theological debates is when I hear people say, God can't do that. All right, let's go back to Theology 101 here. God can do as he pleases. He won't. He, he doesn't do anything against his will. He's absolutely sovereign and powerful and omnipotent. Omnipotent means something, right? All powerful. So just because you can't figure it out doesn't mean that's impossible for God. I don't know how deep the Mariana Trench is. I can't fathom digging something that deep. And yet, there it is. <laughs> It exists, whether I understand it or not. So he wants you to remember, number one, God's the potter, you're the clay. And then he wants you to not forget, hey, by the way, you may not understand God's sovereignty, but you have been saved because he is sovereign. He, write, he talks about how we all deserve justice. And then we get down to verse 29 and listen to this. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Do you know how many Sodomites and Gomorrahites are walking the earth this day? How many? That could have been all humanity. And yet here we are, as a remnant people of God that have been brought out of rebellious humanity. Why? Again, your guess is as good as mine. Because God's gracious because he sent his son to die for you and he is just in that, because he's the sovereign architect of your redemption and in his sovereignty has developed such an amazing plan for your salvation that it befuddles even the best theologians. My friends, whatever theological tribe you say that you belong to, there's not a one of us that will stand before our sovereign God face to face and not have some kind of theological quirkiness worked out of us. Armenian, Calvinist, Molinist, whatever you are, all of us are blind men guessing. We can only take what Scripture says. All those tribes trying to figure out how it works. The reality is, Paul wants us to stop looking and analyzing how God's sovereignty works and to move beyond that to where we can enjoy God's sovereignty. 
Can you imagine how awesome it is to get to walk out of church and realize that you are saved? Why? Because God did it. That you live. Why? Because God gives you breath. That you have a family. Why? Because God gave it to you. He said, every good and perfect gift comes from where? God the Father. Is salvation good? Where did it come from then? Very simple logic, isn't it? Now, guess what? Enjoy the gift. Don't figure out why or how he gave it. Just enjoy it as a gracious gift of the Father. God's a sovereign God. He has saved sinners. He sent his son to show his love as Jesus was bloodied on the cross. And that was a plan that was started from before the beginning of time, before the world was even founded. And Jesus came to save a lot like us. Why? Not because we deserved it, but because he wanted to. Not because he had to, but because he willed it. What a good God we have. He didn't have to save you. He didn't have to be glorified and he didn't need you here to sing songs to him on Sunday. It's not like he's thinking before time, you know, I really want to hear their off-toned voices every Sunday. I really want to see their ragamuffin selves come into church every Sunday to worship. It's not like he's doing that. He wants you in his family and he loves you. And he woos you with the gospel so that your heart is endeared to his. Our sovereign God who did not have to save, saved us anyway. And because he is sovereign, we get to stand on the beautiful fact that God's promises will never fail. I am over time, but it's your fault. If I (laughs) wouldn't have been so self-conscious about how angry you'd have been at me, I wouldn't have said it so much, so... Any hate mail, I'm, you know, I'm out of vacation days, but I might just take one for, you know, I don't know, mental sanity days. So don't mail me any letters, please. But I do love you guys, and I know that these things are deep. I know these things are hard. I remember the first time I heard about sovereignty, and it was tough. So I just want to give you freedom to wrestle, give you freedom to, to not understand, to give you freedom to even go, mm, I don't know. It's okay to say that. But beyond all, Don't forget to enjoy the sovereign God who's king. Don't ever debate that. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. I thank you so much for your love, Father. Um, Lord, I suppose there will be less people here next Sunday than there were this Sunday. But for those that your message has reached, I pray that you'll give them comfort and peace and joy in knowing that you are the sovereign king who keeps your promises. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.